This episode will improve your ceramic onlays from that painful temporization stage, which everyone worries about, to the full bonding protocol with Nick Sethi. Welcome to the Protrusive Dental Podcast, the forward-thinking podcast for dental professionals. Join us as we discuss hot topics in dentistry, clinical tips, continuing education, and adding value to your life and career. With your host, Jazz Gulati. Hello, Petrusarati, and welcome to episode 59 of the Petrusive Dental Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. As always, this episode is wow, like so jam-packed. Like every sentence, like you'll have to definitely grab a pen and paper for this one. It's one of those crazy ones. Uh, and I know you'll love it so much, and I'm so excited to share it with you. Before we get to that, I have some cool news. Uh, I've done a few extra videos. Like uh, I have one on YouTube on how to take occlusal photographs, which you can just search for it. But recently, one of my buddies, uh, Darshan Shukla, he asked me, can you make one on how to take posterior quadrant photographs? So I show how to use the long buckle mirror and that's all on the website, also on uh, YouTube. So check out my channel if you're interested in how to take photos for posterior quadrant dentistry. I want to say a warm welcome to all the new members of the Protrusive Dental community. Thank you so much for joining guys, really appreciate it. If you haven't, check out the Facebook group, it's called Protrusive Dental Community. And one of the listeners, one of the Protrusive uh, should I say, message on there to ask if we have a WhatsApp group. Uh, we don't, but now because of the demand, like that thread has got like 80 plus comments of dentists of the Protrusive who want a WhatsApp group. So it's coming soon guys, as soon as the splint course is done and out and ready, and I've done the whole launch, it's been taking up all my time at the moment. So once that's done, then we will have a WhatsApp group just to Petrusarati. I want to give four more shout outs before the Petrusive Dental Pearl and then we'll have this epic uh, episode with Nick Sethi. So the first shout out is for Sai Mehta who's a great young dentist. Buddy, thank you so much for all your support. Also to Taha Adamji who's made some phenomenal notes on those episodes with Zach Kara, episode 10 and episode 40 something uh, on comprehensive dentistry and treatment planning. Uh, you have done a wonderful job of making notes which I'll be sharing on the Petrusive Dental community as a PDF download. So thank you for taking the time to do that. And if anyone else, because I know some of you guys take notes on the episodes, if you could just email me those notes and I can share them with the community, that would be amazing. A shout out also to Jenny from Snowy Norway. Thank you so much for tuning in from Scandinavia. And last but not least, I'm going to read out an email that I got, which is just, you know, one of those moments where you think, wow, just, just wow, what an impact. And uh, it, it made me so grateful to be, to be able to have this uh, platform with you guys. I really appreciate you guys listening and it's emails like this and that which really just validate and keep me going and keep me podcasting, right? So thanks so much. I'm going to read it out. I'm not going to read out your full name because I don't want to embarrass you in any way. So it's from Adam. It says Adam says, hi Jazz. I just want to reach out to say what a fantastic job you're doing with the podcast. Thank you, buddy. Uh, I'm a 40 year old GDP working in a city I won't name, and up until have felt stuck in a rut and had become a bit despondent with dentistry. Your infectious enthusiasm that you show in your podcast and your YouTube videos has really helped me reignite my passion for dentistry and I'm really enjoying learning again. The guests you have on the show are so interesting and so knowledgeable. I particularly enjoyed listening to the master that is Finlay Sutton. I could listen to him talk about dentures all day. I think we all can, Adam. I'm enjoying my job so much more now and have even started a distance learning MSc program. I won't, I won't name which uni uh, and I'm doing that alongside my job. Uh, keep up the great work. It's always great when you have one of your new episodes drop and I can listen to them on the way home uh, from work. Myself and many others out there are so grateful for the work you put in. 
with all the negativity in the world right now, I still feel feels important to give people some positive feedback and praise where it's due. Thanks again, Jazz. Adam. Adam, honestly, what can I say? You have made my day, month, week, year with that email. That's one of the, the sweetest things I've ever had. So thank you so much. And I'm so, so pleased that uh, it's, it's made you more passionate about dentistry again, which is exactly the mission I'm on now. Before, it was, it was a fluke that I made the podcast, but now I feel like I have a purpose, which is to, to help dentists become the best version of themselves. So thank you, Adam. And thank you, everyone who I've given a shout out to. And thank you who's listening or watching right now for tuning in today. The Protrusive Dental Pearl I have for you is a splint one and it's dedicated to Tilly Houston. Tilly, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. You sent in a, a slide from a lecture you went to at Queen Mary's, I believe, uh, and it was about the use of air abrasion or sandblasting on a Michigan splint for a couple of reasons. Uh, and the reason why you would do this, and uh, typically I would usually do this when I'm checking for compliance. So by air abrading the Michigan or Tanner appliance, when the patient goes home and comes back and when they've parafunctioned on the appliance, you will get these polished areas. So you know they've been wearing it, right? Uh, and if they're not wearing it, it still remains sandblasted or that's how it goes. Now, Tilly messaged me about that. He said, hey Jazz, have you heard about this? But also, she also taught me from, from what she shared with me was that you can actually use it for getting your contacts as well. So when you're checking your contacts, it, it's, it, one of the problems is that when you're checking with the articulating paper, it's difficult to get the markings on the polished surface. It's only after I've adjusted it with the acrylic burr that I can see my contacts much better. So to check your contacts, if you actually aerobraded or sandblasted the Michigan splint, then your contacts or articulating paper marks will show up much better. So that's a great pearl. Uh, Tilly, thanks so much for sharing that with me. And so guys, straight over to the main interview with Nick Sethi. Man, you will love this. Enjoy. Nick, Nick Sethi, welcome to the Protrusive Dental Podcast. How are you, my friend? Oh, amazing, mate. Thank you so much for having me on this evening. Dude, I can't think of anyone else who is so anal about um, getting their onlays on so beautifully. And uh, every time you, I don't know if you know this, Nick, but every time you post a case on Facebook, right, and everyone's like, wow, that's awesome, right? And then you're like, oh, by the way, this is a temporary. And you just, you just crush all our hearts. <laughs> no, that's, that's definitely not true. My temporaries are okay, but they're, they're not out of this world. My, my brother's temporaries, they are another level. My temporaries are all right, but uh, there's... Uh, but, Basil and Sanjay's temporaries, I can't, I can't touch them. They're, 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 we, we know all about Basil and Sanjay's te temporaries, but no, what I, meant, what I meant to say was, you know, you critique every photo so well when you post on, and, and there's such a, uh, something that you're, I mean, I know you're passionate about lots of various dentistry, but I know adhesion and uh, onlays and stuff, something that you're quite hot on, and that's exactly what we'll be talking about today, and we're going to talk about like, the really, <clears throat> really big things that comes onlays, like how to make them look invisible, how to temporize, that's a massive one, that's the biggest pain that dentistry have right how to temporize we're going to cover that we're going to cover about your learn about your workflow you know do you do ids do you not what's like your uh, workflow uh, and and that's exactly what i've got you on for today and i know you're so passionate about it so i'm really excited to have this chat but before we do get into that nick tell those people listening <clears throat> all over the world who don't know who you are a little bit about yourself what drives you where do you work that kind of stuff so uh, my name's Nick. I've been working in private practice in London at a practice called Square Mile Dental Centre for the last 10 years now. I can't believe I'm already 11 years qualified. It's crazy. Um, and I did my qualification at King's and I went back to do a master's in aesthetics at King's as well. And I work for my brother, uh, who is Sanjay Sethi and a previous president of the British Academy of Aesthetic Dentistry, for which 
I've just become scientific chairman. So big, big boots to follow from Roberetti and Sanjay and people and so on. Uh, and Sanjay from day one told me one thing that I would never forget. He said, look, forget all the magazines and the posts you see on work looking pretty. He said, you've got the rest of your career to make things look pretty, to make things look beautiful. But if it doesn't stick, you'll spend the rest of your career replacing it. And so Very true. he hammered me on protocols, Jazz. I mean, literally, my nurse, Shaz, she's like a second mum. She was like a spy. The number of times she ratted me out is amazing. But what would happen is Sam would be so anal, you say I'm a Sam would be so anal about protocols and ad adhesion. Dentists somehow think that we've got this right to be scientists. We're not scientists. We're the end user of a toy that's been made by billions and pounds of research by people that are far cleverer than us. So if, talking about what drives me, what drives me is the inspiration behind the people that made those products and those protocols and the science of how they got to those protocols. How did they develop this chemistry to be able to bond a tooth which has got water in, collagen fibrils, and provides a restoration that can bond to it and change it to a hybrid layer and make a restoration last 15, 20 years? For me, it's bonkers. And That is crazy. What breaks my heart is people abuse the protocols. You know, what, what mm. right do dentists have to abuse those protocols set by the guys that have done so much research? So Sanjay would literally, I remember to this day, at the end of every week, and all I wanted to do at the time was go out and party. You know what it's like. I was 20, 21, 22. Um, and Sanjay would sit me down on a Friday. I'd have to show him all my before and afters for the week, every single one on the intro. Or this, is, this is you as a student? No, this is me when I started working at Square Mile. So okay. put me through a rigorous six month training program and he's done that uh -huh. to every associate to be fair. And we have to show him our photos before and after. And he puts a kitchen timer in every surgery and the nurse press timer, press start when you start the etch and she will not let me wash until it's hit 30 seconds. And then she That's won't let awesome. me start drying until it's washed for 30 seconds. So from minute one, I didn't have a chance to fall into bad habits. So I'm very lucky. It's not because I've got a gift or an incredible brain. I I'd like to consider myself as fairly academic and I enjoy studying. But when it comes to hand skills, my brother's the opposite. He may not be as, as naturally academic, but I've never seen, well, very few people I've seen with natural hand skills like him. So he really whipped me into shape. And that's, that inspired me because I realized in dentistry, people are very lonely. They're, they find that it very challenging. They're constantly comparing themselves to this university of Facebook and Instagram. Mm -hmm. uh, and realistically, you need a mentor. You need a collective of people around you, whether it be an academy such as BARD, uh, BACD, dentinal tubules. You need like-minded people that you can openly discuss your failures. And I was very lucky to have that. So if I can do my bit to help drive people to say that it's okay to fail, because Lord knows I've failed many times, then that for me, to see the light come in someone's eyes like Sanjay did for me is a, is a, is a lovely thing. That's brilliant. I can just, I've just got visions of, at the end of the day, Shaz going up to Sanjay, he's like, he didn't use the 2% claw hex rub and he, and he only aerobraded the, the mesial part, but he missed that distal part. <laughs> oh, she'd do, she'd, she'd, <laughs> she'd kick me under the chair. If I, if I forget <laughs> a second layer of bond or something, she'd physically kick me. Uh, so I, oh. I, amazing.
That's fantastic. Well, let, let's uh, that's dive right in and ask you the first clinical question, which is a bit about decision making, right? So every clinician is different. What features of a tooth, of a cavity, of a, of a fracture, of just any tooth, basically, or, or a quadrant, makes you veer more towards an indirect restoration than a direct restoration. So what, what, what is your threshold? Is it the same as what the textbook says, you know, more than a third of an isthmus, um, root field, that sort of stuff? Or are there, what's your sort of decision-making process with regards to that? It's a really interesting question. And I think decision-making changes all the time over the years. And I always, when I start my lectures, I always talk about traditional concepts and minimally invasive. And whilst we mustn't forget the tr traditional concepts, we also shouldn't just blindly believe full minimal invasive dentistry. We've got to have some, and I like Didier Dietschy coins it beautifully, minimally hazardous dentistry. Uh, you've got to appreciate the limits of adhesion um, and also move away from heavy preparations where we can. So uh, there's a wonderful article by Marco Viniziani, uh, who spoke at the British Academy a couple of years ago. And it's an article I, I recommend everyone to read. And he says that the best way to answer that question you've got general factors and dentists you know you've, you've got someone comes in in pain or a fractured cusp we're very quick to just stick an id block in and crack on but we've got to look at general factors meaning where's that tooth in the arch so i might treat a cracked upper premolar on a patient who's got canine guidance with no lateral contact differently to how i may treat a lower left seven with a strong upper mesiopalatal cusp with history of fractures, clenching, and dietary habits. So the general factors would be the position of the tooth in the arch, the presence or lack of anterior guidance, the depth of occlusal schemes, if they've got history of fractures or parafunction, and multifaceted issues such as tooth wear. So yeah, we've got our general factors, of course, but we've also got to appreciate the, the local factors, and that's what all dentists are are pretty good at and essentially the, those facts have changed so traditionally one third or more of the the isthmus but now it's been shown by Didier Dieci, Pascal Manier and Viniziani that on a vital tooth even if you've got one millimeter of residual cusp width that's enough thickness to be able to keep a wall with a good adhesive restoration you know the, the today's restorative composites are fabulous so I do not take the decision to hack down a cusp lightly with the fact that these composites such as Venus Diamond, GC's Genial, um, HRI, you name it. There's some fabulous systems on the market. Uh, if I'm missing both marginal walls, if I'm a millimeter and an MOD cavity, I'm going to start thinking this is higher risk. Then if you compound that with endodontic treatment and symptoms, cracks, you've got to start thinking. I must admit I tried to be a bit more of a hero earlier on in my career and try to avoid because I thought I was being minimally invasive. But mm. you're not really because when that tooth does fracture, you've then got a bigger crown on your hands. So now I'm a lot quicker to decide to partially cuspal coverage. doesn't mean I'm hacking away buccal and lingual, but if I'm worried about one cusp, I will bring that down because it's only a millimeter, 1.5 millimeters, and then overlaying it with composite. And if it's... I feel that that's not going to work for that patient. 
then I'll weigh up and decide to go indirect, which more often than not, because I don't have a milling machine, will end up being a lithium disilicate restoration. Uh, that's a fantastic, very comprehensive reply, and I love uh, And definitely I'll link to that uh, paper you mentioned uh, for, for general reading. So I'll put it on the website, the show notes, and on the Protrusive Dental Community, uh, where Nick, you're welcome to join as well. So we'll, we'll add that paper on, which would be really cool. Um, it's interesting you say about a millimeter remaining, let's say, for example, Buckley Platelet. It makes total sense because how many massive amalgams have we seen where the, the patient comes in and they've broken off the mesiobuccal corner, but how long ago was that amalgam restoration placed? It's been there for like 30 years, right? So you're completely right. With these modern adhesive systems, then I'm sure that will hopefully surpass it or change the mode of failure uh, in a more favorable way, would you say? Definitely. And it's a fine balance because a dentist has to realize that whilst the adhesive material is getting much better, you can't deny function. And this is what Riaz has really hammered into my brain. This whole uh, patients don't just bite and grind left and right. We chew outside in. We're hammering these cuts all the time. And if you don't appreciate that function and you rely purely on adhesion, you're going to lose because the, the body's going to win. But on the other hand, this whole thing of, like you say, amalgams that I keep saying to patients, you know, Mrs. Smith, we're going to have to replace this, but I will let the tooth tell me I won't tell the tooth. And it's still there five years later, six years later. It's, it's amazing. And it's very much case dependent. I love that, what you said, uh, that, that quote, Mrs. Smith, I'll let the tooth tell me. I'm, I'm definitely going to borrow that one. So that, that's great. Mm. That's a real gem right there. Uh, next question then, Nick, is talk us through your protocol, because I know you're really hot on protocol. Sanjay has really drilled that into you, right? So tell us about specifically, we know that the bond between ceramic to enamel is one of the strongest bonds in dentistry. So tell us, you've got, you've got your rubber dam on, you're doing a lithium disilicate, on, disilicate onlay, um, and you're about to fit. Just briefly describe your standard um, adhesive protocol. So we're skipping past the first stage of the prep and IDS where we're talking about the fit stage, right? I, you know what? I would, I would like your uh, take on, I, I would love to hear your take on IDS as well. And, you know, which, which flowable you use, you know, what adhesive system you use, that kind of stuff. So in fact, let's roll it back a bit. Let's talk about IDS and then let that lead nicely to the fit appointment uh, and yeah. talk us through your protocol there. I think we can learn a lot from that. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's probably a more logical way for, for me to explain it. So, Traditionally, what I used to do was I used to take out my restoration first. I used to build up the tooth with a core filling, and I'll talk about the adhesive steps in a minute, and then I would prepare the tooth. What I found in my hands is I found that took quite a long time to build up a core filling, wait, you know, cure it layer by layer by layer. Um, I didn't see the point of it. And if the whole goal was just to block undercuts, then I thought, well, why don't I get my prep done first? So I leave my amalgam in. I will do my depth cuts. I will do my reduction. I will do my variable margins, which we can discuss later, how I blend in my margins to make the ceramic look not invisible, but as, as close as I can to the enamel. Once I've done my margins and I've done my contacts and I've uh, done my depth cuts, at that point, there's not much restoration left. I remove the amalgam very carefully or whatever's there or carries or composite. And at that point, I don't have a massive job to do in terms of rebuilding. And with onlays, we're not trying to rebuild a whole core because we want two, three millimeters for the ceramic. We want the strength of the Emacs. And I don't understand when people are doing these big core fillings and then saying we only do... 0.5 or 0.7 millimeter reduction. And I'm thinking it's bonkers. It doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. We've got mm -hmm. a 
whopping great big restoration in the middle, why not have a thicker layer of ceramic? So the first thing is I make sure that I don't even call it a core filling. We call it a mini core. Are you enjoying the Protrusive Dental Podcast? Well, allow me to deliver you even more value. You can now download the iOS or Play Store app for free. Just search Protrusive on your app platform. Now, if you're a true Protrusive and you want to support the podcast, you want to claim CPD for all the listening and watching that you do. You want to get access to exclusive clinical walkthrough videos to make dentistry tangible, as well as a premium newsletter, access to the Protrusive Vault, and the ability to download all the clinical videos and podcast videos so you can view them offline later. You can get all of that for less than 15 tax deductible dollars per month. So what are you waiting for? Download the Protrusive app now on iOS or Android for absolutely nothing. We've worked so hard on this, the Protrusive team, and I know you're just going to love it. Now back to the main episode. So we're essentially, we've got rid of our amalgam. I always use air abrasion with aluminium oxide. And that's because, as you know, when you cut with a diamond burr, what we think looks nice is essentially hundreds and thousands of micro cracks. Uh, it's like throwing a stone at your windowsill. You get all these little micro cracks. So what an air abrasion system does is it removes all of that so you get a nice clean surface, but also any oil from the handpiece, any residual biofilm that's going to massively impact that adhesion is then gone. You don't have to get a massive expensive unit. I bought a two, two and a half grand prep start unit. People buy an Aquacare unit and these are great. And I've worked my way up to be able to afford and buy that and save for it. But you can pick up a, a micro etcher for I think two, mm-hmm. 300 pounds and they do That's the right. same thing. I mean, the latest trend, Nick, I don't, I, don't, I don't condone this, but the latest trend, because I've got a few uh, buddies on Instagram who, who've told me this, is uh, 80 pounds on eBay. They go for a cheapy Chinese make. I don't condone it in any way, but you know, they're out there. You know, we know that cheapy Chinese loops are out there. We know that cheapy uh, any country sort of uh, systems of air abrasion are there, but nothing beats the, the gold standard like what you're using. But yeah, these their options do exist. Okay, perfect. Uh, so essentially, once the air abrasion is done, then at that point, we've got a nice clean surface. And since I've been using microscope, honestly, the, the change is incredible. Even from loops to microscope, the surface you see after air abrasion is just stunning. Uh, it just looks like it's ready to accept resin. It's lovely. At this point, depending on my goal, my adhesive uh, protocol changes. If I have not got a deep margin and I'm not planning on doing deep margin elevation, if I've got nice super gingival margins, then my only goal is to seal the dentine and block the undercuts and with flowable and maybe add a touch of composite if it's too deep. And I don't want any more than three millimeters of lithium disilicate as been shown by Professor D. Arcangelo, if you've got more than three millimeters of lithium disilicate, you're like your unit struggles to penetrate to cure the cement underneath. So three millimeters is our critical level, and that's quite easily achievable. You just measure to the adjacent marginal ridge with your INC probe, and you just build up your core to that point. If you overdo it, well, you can just trim it back. No big deal, right? So if I'm not going to do deep margin elevation, I'm not really bonding to any enamel. In that case, I generally don't etch. I will go to a self-etch system because I'm purely adding to my dentine. I like to use OptiBond XTR. I use a dedicated two-bottle system, which is a separate self-etch and then a separate bond. 
maybe because I'm pedantic and Sanjay's knocked it into me. You've got fabulous bonds such as G Premio Bond, the Clearfill, the Universal Bonds, and they all have the uh, MDP monomer in. They all have the ability to self-etch, and I've no doubt that's where we are going, and I'm no, I've no doubt they work terrifically well. But not having any true D-bonds in the last eight years with this system it's difficult for me to change when it's not mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's taking another 20 seconds, right? So I like yeah. my wet chemistry and I like my dry chemistry separate. That, that's, that's how I feel. So I do my self-etching primer, dry uh, bond, dry light cure. I always light cure my bond for 40 seconds. Uh, again, being pedantic. The further Velo or no Velo? Always Velo, man. I can't, I can't do, I can't do anything without my Velo, and that's not a problem. Man, forty seconds with a Velo is like three minutes with a normal light cure. <laughs> you know what? It's funny because everyone say, and I keep saying it doesn't work like that. Uh, the, the chemistry, the and it's so funny because I remember when I first got it, I was thinking, yeah, wicked. I can cure each layer in five seconds now. Um, but anyway, we'll, we'll go off topic. But essentially, the power <laughs> diminishes so quick. Every millimeter you move away from the tooth, mm. the power almost halves. So essentially, if you're six, seven millimeters away from the base of that cavity, you've got to give it time. And especially if you're not using a powerful like your unit, if you're using something that's under 800 milliwatts per millimeter squared, you're going to get poorly cured adhesive. And this is why we see marginal staining uh, and post-op sensitivity on class two composites because we're not respecting the light. It's like a bug's life. Don't look at the light. You know, the light, <laughs> the light is so important and it's... It, I always say to dentists, it's the easiest part of the whole process, but we don't give it enough credit. And we're not like curing, we're like activating. We're, we're starting a free radical reaction that will then carry on over the next 24 hours. So once we like cure, I then use some flowable composite. For the FIPO protocol, we use their Genial Flow, uh, which flows really nicely, the universal injectable. Because uh, it's not too runny, and you don't want it running off the sides of the tooth. It's quite nice to handle. Uh, if I've got dark amalgam stains or residual dark brown color from caries, then with lithium disilicate, if you're going to use a high translucency block, which we'll come to later about hiding margins and becoming invisible, any grayness will show through and it wrecks the aesthetics. So you can either use a more opaque block, but then you use that ability to blend, or you take something like a baseliner from Coolza, you get the Venus baseliner, which is literally... I call it dental tipex. Um, mm -hmm. Just put a drop of that and it just completely masks it. And then I just cover it again with a touch of flow. Bob's your uncle, we're done. And in most of the time, I don't even need to then go ahead and put a composite on because I'm usually at that point within three millimeters of the marginal ridge. So I don't need to build any more. If it's a very deep cavity, I will then use my genial posterior composite to then put a mini layer on to build. Uh, and then cure it. But essentially, it's very quick rather than rebuilding a core filling, putting matrix bands on and stuff. I don't need to. I'm controlling where I put the flow. The whole process of the mini core takes me no longer than about four or five minutes. It's, it's very quick. I mean, you've got your mini core, but that is essentially doubles up as your immediate dentine ceiling. Is it fair to say? Absolutely. And in fact, one step further than that, uh, there is a problem. If you're just immediate dentine ceiling, the layer of bond we use for people that aren't using a thick bonding agent such as OptiBond FL or OptiBond XTR, if you're using one of the older generation uh, all-in-one bottles, uh, 
um, then what happens is your adhesive layer is too thin and you get an oxygen inhibition. So even if you're light curing, some of the adhesive layer doesn't actually set. So you still have an uncured resin, which basically means your dentine isn't sealed. So all the problems you're going to get, possible sensitivity, uh, poorer bonding strength at stage two, these things can be easily overcome by just adding a drop of flowable over the top to block that oxygen inhibition layer. And then you get the benefit of curing the adhesive fully because it's blocked and you can control the color and uh, undercuts with the flowable. Brilliant. I love that. That's fantastic. And you're, and you're scanning at the moment? You're, you're taking imps? What's your flow at the moment? I've, I've just been scanning for the last year. We've just bought the, we bought the Trios 4, uh, three shape. Uh, nice. And it's, it's lovely. It's not without its learning curves. It's not without its problems. So I, I wouldn't say, ah, oh, put your impression materials away. It's a learning curve. Now that I've got used to it, oh, it's a dream. It's lovely because one of the biggest things is you can check your prep and you can check your clearance immediately, which for me, me being just the same as any other dentist, I do what everyone does. I often used to underprepare the occlusal surface, the mid-occlusal, and we used to complain at our labs when we get a very thin onlay, but they've had no choice. We're very quick to blame our labs, but if we don't give the correct space for them, you know, they're not Harry Potter. We've got a, either my lab would phone me in the past and say, oh, Nick, there's not enough space. Either I've got to get the patient back, numb up again, take off the temporary reprep, or they make me a reduction jig, which loses the accuracy of these minimal prep onlays, which I don't like. So with scanning, I can just check my clearance and I can see very quickly where I am. So from that point of view, it's great. Patient comfort wise, obviously through the roof. Um, they, they love it from a patient perspective it's, it's great for a I, I guess selling is a bad word but it's it's from a communication tool it's been fabulous and just that digital design being able to see the the wax up design digitally the next day is amazing or oh, no i don't like this incline i prefer if we can avoid that contact normally you just rely on the labs just doing what they do or maybe they show you a day before the appointment you know which is no good absolutely and, and that's uh, that function of uh, checking the clearance has saved me a few times well. often the the functional um, functional bevel area buckley where i've perhaps underprepared and be able to check oh let me go back rub that bit out prep again a little bit give that bit of space it's just uh, a dream also using the the, the three shapes so that's been uh, great as well so you're now going to come on to the actual fit appointment and, and the protocol that's so you you beautifully described um, the your IDS version if you like blocking the undercuts we forgot about the temporary because that's not the easy bit either can, can, can we get the temporary at the end because the temporary I want to give it a whole section because temporary is so so I mean oh, everything's man. important don't get me wrong but temporary is like if you look at the because what I do is I monitor uh, on, on Facebook the kind of questions people are asking and whatnot and a huge one is how can I get my temporary stick right yeah. um, it, I just want on the theme of protocols I would love to get get your the rest of your protocol and that can be uh, chaptered off as the protocols so the one thing I forgot to mention is if I do have a deep margin, which is equigingival or just slightly subgingival, uh, then I have to make a decision because too many times I think, oh, I managed to isolate that at visit one, I'm so good. But when you come to try and isolate at visit two, 
it's a whole different ball game. Trying to get a rubber down around a deep margin is much more difficult than putting a rubber down around a tooth and the margin goes deep. That's okay, we can handle that. There's so many times where I've been sweating trying to fit an onlay in the past where I've got these deep margins that at visit one I was giving myself a pat on the back. So just to rewind, if I'm gonna be doing a deep cavity which has gone subgingival or a fracture, then I'm gonna consider two things. I'm either gonna consider crown lengthening uh, and then putting the rubber dam on immediately and doing my deep margin elevation. But a lot of the time, uh, has been shown by a wonderful paper, Getsy, uh, in 2019 in the European Journal, that we were always taught this thing about biological width. You must have three to four millimeters from the crestal bone to your margin of restoration. And that was true for traditional prost when you're cementing a crown, but it's not true for composite, which blends in and you're polishing the margin to a flush finish with tooth. You don't have a, a fit as such. You can get within one to 1.5 millimeters of crestal bone. And as long as that composite is smooth, the bone tolerates it superbly. So as long as you can isolate it, you can do deep margin elevation. Only if I can't isolate it, will I then do crown lengthening. So if I'm doing crown lengthening, I will etch the enamel, especially if there's a little ring going up the walls. I want to make sure I etch that enamel because I will be bonding to enamel. So then there's no, ch there's no chance I'm going to rely purely on self-etch. I'm going to etch. Uh, then we build up the composite for deep margin elevation. The reason being, I want to build up to make my margin supragingival so that, answering the next question, firstly, rubber dam placement is easy as pie because that is tricky. Um, so deep margin elevation is a game changer for your second stage protocol. So now we come to second stage, we, we get the onlay back, I check the fit. The nice thing is usually at this stage, I don't need local anesthetic because I've done the mini core, sealed all the dentine, generally there's no sensitivity. So, uh, you know, no one likes to put ID blocks back in for a fit and lots of local. A lot of the time I get away without it. Temporary comes off, we clean it with a bit of air abrasion again. I check the fit of my onlay, I check the lightly check the occlusion, I check the contacts, everything we normally do, and roughly check the aesthetics. Emacs will always, or lithium disilicate, or lissy, whatever you use, uh, lithium disilicate will always look brighter before you cement it. Uh, once you cement it, it really acts as a contact lens that absorbs into the, into the tooth. Um, so at that point, my rubber dam then goes on. The onlay, I go through my bonding protocol. We do the porcelain etch. I use the uh, one from Ultradent. We then wash, we dry. Uh, I then use the, I don't have an ultrasonic bath yet, uh, but I, I need to get one because apparently Mauro Fradiani said, Nick, you have to get ultrasonic bath, so I'm going to get one. <laughs> uh, then I'm just using uh, normal phosphoric acid etch after yep. to try and remove the salts, which has proved not to be so effective, but I'm still doing it. Then I, I prefer to use a separate silane and then apply a bond. I know you get these monobond pluses where it's all involved, but I prefer the chemistry to be separate. So we apply the silane for five minutes. While the, while the silane's going on, my rubber dam's going on. So I'm not wasting time. And I get my nurse to do a bit of this as well. So it helps, she helps me out. Uh, once the rubber dam goes on, then uh, my onlay is ready to go in the heater. I put my onlay in the heater. This is a critical step. 
because I cement all my onlays, the Lissy onlays that we use, I cement them with heated composite because I find, number one, the aesthetics is incredible, which we'll touch on later, uh, but also the handling. Everyone in this room and this podcast knows how to handle composites. Everyone struggles to handle looting cements because they go everywhere. And no matter how much you try and clean, you take that bite wing a year later and you just see a bit of extra cement sometimes and you think, oh, how am I going to get rid of this? Then you're there with scalpels, blades, you, you know, whereas with composite, heated composite, it just goes on like butter. So the tooth is ready. I will do a total etch technique this time because there's no dentine exposed. So I etch the whole thing, the enamel, the composite, mm-hmm. after, after air abrasion. So my composite is fresh and ready to go. Then use a uh, same bonding agent, which contains MDP. But at this point, you could just use a standard universal 3M Scotch bond, G Premio bond, universal, all of these things, because there's no dentine involved. So now you're back on easy street. You can use whatever you want. Once that's done, if you talk to the chemist, they say you must cure your bond because you need to get that bond strength. If you talk to any dentist out there that's done that a couple of times and your onlay then doesn't fit, you don't cure mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so you so- definitely don't, right? Because I was, I was thinking, yeah, I've, I've read that, you know, some dentists, you know, or, or some instructions say, say cure, but I made that mistake before and it's not quite uh, seating as it, as it should do. So the, no. the real world clinical advice is it's, it's, it's impossible. It's impossible. Well, it's not impossible because I have done it yeah. and it has worked. Yeah. But, I mean, do you really want that to be the step that wrecks your whole the whole plot of the story, right? You don't want that. And, you know, using a light like a Velo, I'm pretty confident this thing is going to get through a brick wall, let alone uh, a thin one, two millimeter, Mm. two millimeter onlay. So we don't cure. We dry, we air thin, and then my onlay comes out, which is warm, and then I apply warm composite, heated composite. Composite is an insulating material, so even if you heat it, it loses temperature very quick. So by the time you faff around putting hot composite on a cold onlay, it's already cooled down and it's going to be very stiff. We use the Genial because it's quite nice to handle. Um, But previously I've done hundreds with Venus Diamond, which is lovely material as well, but it's very stiff. And if it loses its heat, you're not sure if it's fully seated. You press, you remove the excess, you press a bit more, more excess, and you're thinking, God, when's this going to stop? And I have had a couple of incidences where I've tried to do a six and seven together that by the time I get to the seven, if my nurse hasn't put the composite back in the heater, the seven didn't fully seat. And I took a post-op extra because it didn't feel right. And you think, oh, man, nightmare. So a hot onlay and making sure the composite's back in the heater when you're not using it. Uh, is the way to get around it. Composite goes on, I press, I use the uh, the LMR instrument, the little fissura, the green fissura mm-hmm. that we do posterior anatomy with. Um, we remove the excess with that. Elaine taught me that trick actually, it's lovely. We remove the excess, floss the contacts, uh, keep lots of pressure on the tooth, and then we light cure it for minimum one minute per surface, buckle, put lingual occlusal, and then I go around another 20 seconds using an air block such as OxyGuard or um, liquid, whatever it's called. There's, there's a few on the market like, like liquid barrier. Then the nice thing about that is because composite drags together, there's no cleanup. I'm not spending more than literally, the only thing I spend then is adjusting occlusion if I have to. There's no cleanup as such because everything's just dragged away nicely. I might use a composite brush over the margin just to make sure that as you're dragging the composite, it doesn't pull. 
between the composite, uh, between the onlay and tooth. I would use my fusora and then go over it with a brush so there's no dragging. Then we set it. Um, remove it, check occlusion, adjust. And I have to say, it's the, it's the least stressful adhesive cementation technique that I've had for years because I used to use, you name it, Multilink, Panavia, Flowable Composite, the lot. And I never enjoyed it. I never enjoyed cementing with a dual cure composite. I just, I, I'm a slow dentist. I take my time. And I don't like the fact that someone's telling me I've got a minute to clean this thing up. <laughs> it's, it's stress I just don't need in my life, Jazz. Um, and so with a dual cure composite, you know, if you're not quick and it's a, an upper left seven with a patient with difficult access, it, it's, it's not fun. It's really not fun. It's so, not fun to use uh, those little uh, interproximal saws there. Trust me, I know. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And the other thing with dual cure composites is... I know they're getting better and the color stability, everyone talks about E-delta numbers and they're getting better and better. But you put it in a smoker and you show me four years later, because I've done it and every time on these ones where I've left the margin, the mid-buckle aspect, thinking I'm, I'm amazing, when they smile, I can see a little stain line and it breaks my heart because I followed all the steps. And maybe it, maybe it was my hands, maybe I'm just not good enough with dual cure composites, but I haven't found that since I've been using a, a true light cured and a hybrid restorative. Amazing. Man, that protocol was, was, uh, was amazing. And I know for those listening out there who, who maybe struggled with these mini steps, I think you've covered it so well that that's worth another listen again and again and again because that's how uh, well and you, f you flowed it so nicely. An interesting point you made about uh, how composite drags together and how you can use the, the composite brush, for example, to, to just brush the margin and use that Fisura instrument. And uh, I believe there is some evidence uh, it might have been by John Kanker uh, uh, that if you use rotary instruments to, to, to clean up, that you actually end up getting a void or, or a gap. Uh, I think David, David Jadol taught me that actually uh, in a tubules lecture. Uh, and so, so much better to use, like say, the brush to, to brush it out rather than using the rotary in instruments afterwards. Uh, and you, I imagine you don't get as nice of a finish by using uh, rotary instruments afterwards. Yeah, of course. And, you know, how many times have you seen a patient that's finished ortho and you can see a tiny bit of excess ortho cement on their tooth? It's not the end of the world, right? And essentially, even with this onlay, if there's a tiny bit of excess composite at that margin, it's composite, which we use for restorations. If it's smooth, I'd rather leave a, uh, a couple of microns of excess composite. And if it stains over the years, I can use a brownie or a polisher and polish it back. We have this obsession with getting absolute flush to the tooth. And it was Bioclear that really turned my head around and saying, anything adhesive doesn't like a margin. So we've got to get our things out of our head about having a finish line. It's got to be an infinity bevel. So I always air braid past my margin because I don't want flash. I want bond. I want a true bond to that residual enamel. I don't want flash that I'm having to pick off. It's a different, whole different concept, but to me it makes so much sense. Brilliant. Chamfer versus bevel. Which do you choose when? So, for uh, example, when you're doing the onlay, are, are you finishing with like a, a shoulder chamfer uh, or more just like a, a, a bevel? Or do you, do you do vary between the two? Or, or obviously a butt joint sometimes as well, Can, just to throw that in there. Yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to when we're doing the hands-on course because we've had some really cool typodonts made that make this really clear because it, I've tried to explain this a few times without pictures and it, it, it's tricky. Uh, but I'll give it a go. But essentially... The tooth has a point of maximum bulbosity, the widest point, uh, and colloquially referred to as the equator. 
So the equator of the tooth is a very important point because coronal to the equator, you have an abundance of enamel, two millimeters thick enamel in all planes, uh, beautifully aesthetic, rock solid stiffness. That's the key, uh, aesthetic and stiffness. Apical to that equator, you lose enamel rapidly and you end up with very, very thin enamel and rapidly, as soon as you touch it with a burr, you're indenting. So now you have a uh, more flexible material and you don't have that residual stiffness that you'd have from your uh, enamel. So this is why your margin has to change according to where you are on a tooth. If you are coronal to that equator, then you don't need a big shoulder. You don't need that millimeter of ceramic that we were taught in Schillingberg, incredible uh, traditional crown and bridge uh, prosthetics. All you need is some form of what we call a contact lens margin, something that you use almost like a rugby shaped diamond to create a gradual contact lens purely for an aesthetic advantage, but also like we do on anterior teeth, you create this adhesive advantage because you expose not hundreds, but thousands of enamel microprisms. So we optimize an aesthetic and an adhesive advantage with a contact lens margin. If we now roll back, if we're doing a contact area, like a, a mesial aspect, anytime you're breaking a contact, you're gonna be below the equator because by definition, a contact point is gonna be the widest area, right? So apical to that, if I'm gonna have a more flexible dentine, as Pascal Manier shows us, we need to replace the stiffness of the tooth. So if you have these knife edge finishes in lithium disilicate, which I've done, you're gonna see chipping. And I, I again, tried to be minimally invasive in the past, showing ultra feather edge margins down in deep areas, and I've seen chipping in numerous cases. And I didn't know whether it was my protocol, but now having read and understood a bit more on my journey, of which I still consider myself young in that journey, um, it makes total sense. That patient is biting down, chewing in and out. And what takes the force is the rest of the tooth near the cervical area that is taking that brunt. And if you've got a flexible material and a thin ceramic edge, it's going to fracture. So apical to that equator, we got to have a thicker shoulder, a traditional shoulder that's going to be that one millimeter thickness. And Marco Viniziani describes this really nicely as well to replace that stiffness on the tooth. And then all you do is take a round ended uh, tapered diamond burr and you just connect the dots. So you do your contact lens margin, buccal lingual wall, your shoulder margin, mesial distal, and then you just roll up the walls and allow the two to meet and you have this lovely graduation from shoulder to contact lens. And again, I'm making gestures with my hands, which looks silly for those of you listening on uh, Spotify or whatever. <laughs> I'm making Mexican wave type gestures. Uh, <laughs> but essentially on the course, we've had these typodonts made where we have a, a, a colored onlay, like a blue or gold onlay cemented on an ideal prep. So the delegates get to prep through that colored onlay till they get back to the ideal prep. So it's gonna help them visualize where we want what and why, uh, because I'm a very visual person. And so I'm a typical Essex boy. I need things explained in the most simple way possible. 
And if I can get it, anyone can get it. Dude, you explained that so beautifully. And do send me details of the course because you know what usually happens is someone as passionate as you comes on and people always bombard me. It's like, hey, you know what? Nick was awesome. Uh, I want to learn more about online from him. So I'd rather just stick it on the website. It'd be easy to find. So I will add that to the show notes because those models sound amazing. And I think you guys with the FIPO protocol, what I've seen, have really got something great going there as well. Um, now we can really nicely touch on, because you've explained that beautifully about what type of um, finish to have where. And it makes so much more sense in relation to the equator, which is just a, a genius term. Um, how can we make our contact lens margins or any margin that we're finishing mid-buckly because we want to be more conservative? How can we really get it to blend in without having that, um, that, that show through, that, that visible um, differentiation between the restoration and the tooth? Like sometimes I've, I've, got, haven't, I've had an aesthetically demanding patient on a premolar, for example. And for someone who's not aesthetically demanding, I'm happy to finish mid-buckle. All right, uh, with my lithium disilicate. With someone who's aesthetically demanding, I turn it more into a, a vonlay, like a veneer onlay. So that buckle, I'm going to drop it right down, uh, sacrifice that enamel for the aesthetic advantage, only because I've doubted my skill to be able to nail it in that uh, high demanding patient. Any gems you can share with me? Well, Jasmine, you're being harsh. Didier Dieci himself says that the ideal place to have a finish is either in the incisal third, where it's all enamel, or the cervical third where it's all dentine. The, the user, the operator should be very careful about placing a margin in the mid third where it's a combination of both, especially, especially if it's visible in the smile zone. So this is the master of bonding himself saying this. So it's not like anyone's doing anything wrong by dropping the margin more apically. So the first tip I'd give, sit the patient up before you numb them up, smile, and mark the extent of the tooth that you see. Uh, I use just, I've got hundreds of black markers I just buy from Amazon. I just mark the, the line on the tooth. And when I'm then preparing, if I'm anywhere near that black line, I'm going to extend it apically. So if I'm not in the incisal third, if I'm getting close to something that's going to be seen, if in any doubt, I do exactly what you do. This, I like what you call it, a vonlay. I did, uh, I'm going I'm to nick that. That's great. Um, so then I'm with you totally because... It's risky. If it's a lower molar in a patient that's not as aesthetically demanding, then I'm going to push it and go mid-buckle. There are some cases where I feel like, no, do you know what? I trust Eva, my lab technician, and Steve Campbell. I'm going to go for it. And we do get really nice results. And the way to do that is, number one, not have a flat tabletop. If you have a flat tabletop, you've got what we said earlier, you've got a finish line. Composite doesn't like finish line. If you've got this contact lens, then it's the same principle as our class four. You've got this margin of error with this bevel effect. The second thing is the translucency of the ingot you use. Because if you're using a opaque ingot, no matter what you do, it's going to look so different to the tooth underneath. So you've got to start looking with uh, products like Lissy. You've got to look at the high translucency blocks because they are, they are like a contact lens. This whole process is like a contact lens. So they absorb the color very well from the tooth underneath. And then you cement with just a normal A2 or A3 uh, composite. We use the posterior genial A3 composite or whatever the tooth is. Bond that on and it picks up the color beautifully. The only caveat being is if there's any residual staining on the tooth and you haven't blocked it, it's going to look rough and it will show through. Even if it's on the occlusal, it will still affect the uh, color from the buckle aspect. And I've had a couple of cases that I really regret where the, 
there was heavy occlusal staining and I didn't put enough of the base liner. I thought, oh, it's okay. The buckle wall's fine. It totally showed through. It's amazing. It really does fluoresce through that too. Um, and then the other thing is using composite rather than looting cements. Mm -hmm. the, I mean, composites are designed to be strong, but composites are designed to be beautifully aesthetic with the optical properties they have, the filler particles. They're designed for that. So why are we still messing around with looting cements? I, I don't get it. We've got a material that is designed to blend. Heat it, and that's, that's the key thing for me. And that's been a game changer. But in an aesthetically demanding patient, I'm with you 100. percent You 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 gotta don't don't make your job harder than it is. <laughs> well said, and I think anyone who's sitting on the fence who has um, been not confident in changing their protocol from a dual cured cement like Panavia, which I, I'm a big fan of, but then moving to uh, a composite, I think your protocol today and how you described it is really gonna uh, give them a lot of confidence to to move on to that. And your your tip about heating the onlay, uh, it's fantastic. Uh, just a, a point about um, Emacs in particular, so lithium delicate Emacs by Ivoclar, because that's the one I've used more of. Um, I tend to go for like an LT, so low translucency, or an MT, medium translucency ingot, is one better than the other for, for trying to blend it in in your experience? Well, the more translucent, so a low translucency is going to be difficult because you're going to have that obvious change because it's low translucency. A medium will be better. The, the high translucency are the ones that are going to blend in the best, for sure. But the color of the tooth underneath has got to be good. If you're doing one mm -hmm. of these... Von lasers, you've now coined it, I like that, and you've got a dark tooth, let's say non-vital, then you don't want to be using a high translucency block. Then you can go for a low translucency block. It doesn't matter because you're in the cervical area anyway and you're finishing on the, uh, an area which is mainly dentine, which is more chromatic and easier for that lab to mask. So I think it comes down to operator technique of how we're finishing that margin. It comes down to documentation with our photography. Our labs are not magicians. You know, I feel sorry for them. They, get, they, they have the hardest job. They don't have the emotional glory that we get when something goes great, but they get all the bollocking when something goes wrong. <laughs> sorry, I'm not allowed to say bollocking on... It's totally cool on this podcast, man. Uh, I love that. <laughs> Um, I've got I've got some technicians who listen to this actually, and they're going to love that. So shout out to to Graham from Trueform Lab. He's a buddy I've met met on Instagram, and we we chat quite a bit now. Uh, quite a few technicians picked up, so they they will love that. They will really appreciate what you said there. Oh man! And listen, I say to young dentists, if you want to learn how to prep a tooth, talk to your technician. People just don't. Talk, it's like two things. People don't talk to their sales representatives, who are trained to know the best protocol for the product you're using. And people don't talk to the lab technicians who are making preps, uh, your onlays on your preps. You know, get their advice. Let them, you know, critique. I always say, even now, I say to Eva Forst, who I use for my high-end cases, I say to Eva, uh, let me know if, if we're struggling or something and what I can tweak next time. And there's always something. There's always something. Uh, to this day, every time I think I've nailed it, I'll look at my post-op photos and think, oh, close but now i've got to work on this uh but essentially communication with lab is very important you need to have a lab that has got the gusto the skills that can do it so i'm not saying the dentist should blame themselves for everything the lab also has to be damn good and you need that marriage of uh, harmony between you find someone that you work well with and if you're if you're a dentist that's trying to find a lab that's going to do a, a lithium disilicate onlay for 20 quid well, you're not really going to have that quality. I mean, do you want to charge 20 quid for doing an onlay? 
What do you expect if you're getting charged 20 quid for the ceramic, right? I mean, Eva is certainly not cheap, but I charge accordingly for it to the patient. But the time she spends, that bespoke character we get from it, the little craze line she puts in, the white effects, you, know, you just put it on, you think, oh man, it's just, it's just music. It's beautiful. When you, some of these ones that go on, I just look at it and think, oh, she's done amazing. That is awesome. I love it. And this moves us on to the last big theme of this podcast, because we're reaching that critical one hour point, right? But this is so, 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 so big, right? Onlays, we're doing more and more onlays. I feel that dentists are um, doing it more. And, and those dentists who aren't doing it, then they have an opportunity to learn from people like you, uh, Elevate, FIPO, to, to, to learn how to do these uh, preps to, to, to get. Because a lot of dentists don't have faith. They don't have the faith in bonding because they, they've stuck to tradi traditional methods. And they need to move and learn about the protocols so you, that you've so beautifully described today. But one thing that um, annoys everyone is temporary. So when you're doing the onlays, that's more in the direction of a tabletop, let's say. It doesn't have to be. But even then, you know, compared to a traditional crown, you don't have that retention form, right? You, you can have a little bit of resistance, but you don't have that uh, classic retention form because that's coming from your composite. That's coming from your panavia, whatever you're using. That's coming from your etched enamel. So therefore, the risk of the temporary coming away is much higher. So what are Nick Sethi's top tips to temporize onlays? Well, the first thing I'd say is it's not as fun as with a traditional crown. I mean, I did Basil's year course and he really opened my eyes to how to do a provisional properly on a traditional prep. And I love relining with acrylic and I love nailing my provisionals for full crowns or uh, vertiprep crowns, it's stunning. Uh, I really enjoy watching the tissues mature. Uh, with onlays, listen, you're saving so much tooth structure, there's gotta be a weak link in this chain. And the weak link is the temporary here. Uh, I've got some tips. Do I have all the answers? No. But what I will say is two things. Number one, if you're working with a lab that can turn around work quite quick, that even if the onlay attempt does come off, because you've done immediate dentine sealing and a mini core, there's no sensitivity. I I've never had a patient that said to me, well, no, that's a lie. I've had one. But hardly ever do we get a patient that has sensitivity if the onlay comes off. And it's a matter of a week or two and they're back. I'm not saying that's a, a great situation, but if it does happen, uh, it's not the end of the world. However, we have come up with a couple of little things that have dramatically helped. The one thing I don't like to do, which I know some people do, some people uh, like to spot etch and just bond the uh, provisional on, like we do for veneers. Uh, mm. I find that risky because after I've done my immediate dentine sealing and my mini core, even if I've used an air block, I've had situations where my provisional has bonded and I couldn't get it off. And then I've had to prep through and we start again. That's no fun for anyone. With veneers, it's different because you've got a lot more leverage and it's, it's, it's not the same. Your preparations are even more smaller. But if you're doing an MOD with a on onlay, you're in trouble because it will lock into that uh, MOD areas. So I don't like to shrink fit them as such. Um, I, I'm not a fan of that because it can bond underneath. And also with shrink fitting, you often get excess. You know, you can put wedges in to reduce that, but you know, you're relying on precision gums at visit two. And if you've got inflamed gums and you're trying to isolate this thing, it's not fun. So I am doing a traditional um, putty index before, but 
here's the key thing. I'm trying to improve that patient all the time. So if I've got a deficient lower right six occlusal amalgam, when the walls have cracked, a lot of the reasons why that would have happened is because the dentist infra-occluded, which I probably did a few years back, infra-occluded that amalgam, the residual cuspal walls take a lot more pressure, they end up fracturing, right? So before we start prepping a tooth, what I like to do is look at the opposing tooth and see, has that tooth over-erupted? Do I need to reduce that palatal cusp? Uh, Riaz came up with a great idea for the FIPO concept where we put a blob of composite on the tooth, put some glycerin on the opposing tooth, get the patient to bite together, we cure it. We take a scan of that because that shows the lab the perfect inclines that they need because it is a negative of the opposing cusp. And what I would then do is I would then take an index of that after I've shaped it up. So my temporary is already going to have a better occlusal function than what they came in with. So we're getting better every time. Once I've then made my, using a bisacryl, I use a bisacryl just to uh, make my temporary onlay. So for those listening, bisacryl is like pro-temp or uh, yeah. integrity, that kind of stuff? Exactly, luxotemp, pro-temp, you name it. Uh, we put a bit of glycerine over the surface. Uh, I try not to use Vaseline because Vaseline doesn't come off and it will interfere with your temporary cement. So I use a bit of glycerine. I then use my bisacryl. Uh, I let the material set for a good three, four minutes, you know, trying to just pick it off after a minute is still too flexible and the shape will shrink while you're adjusting it and it won't fit so well. Then once I've adjusted it and I'm happy, I don't use temp bond non-usional. I think it's useless. I think it's, it's rubbish. Probably, it's one of the worst materials I've ever used. The temp bond's great. If I know I'm going to be using a glass anima cement, then temp bond's great. But temp bond non-usional, it's, like it's like they mixed Vaseline in it on purpose just to piss us off. Um, but uh, sorry whoever makes 10 bond uh, no offense um, but essentially I like to use uh, poly F um, I find that it's much more attentive to the tooth it's bactericidal the gums come back looking beautiful and if it's very non-retentive and I've got someone with uh, bruxis features or parafunction I would just get a bit of acrylic like tab 2000 or you get cold pack you know the, the acrylic trim green? Trim, uh, that's the other one I was thinking of. And you just mix a tiny bit of a trim. You put a bit of uh, monomer on the, a bit of, sorry, a bit of bond, like universal bond on the adjacent teeth. And you just mix a tiny bit of trim and you put it on the onlay and lock it into the tooth next door, just under the equator. You make sure you've got space to put a TP in. So That's I would, so basil. Yeah, that's you know where I got that from, right? So you're just tacking it in with a bit of trim so that you've got that physical protection. It's not bulletproof, but it will certainly reduce the risk. Of that's that. really good. I, I didn't appreciate and it makes sense. I didn't appreciate that you can because uh, I make my um, temporaries also out of Bizacryl. Uh, but for some reason, I, I don't do it what you what you suggested. Because I just uh, always thought I had to use acrylic to be able to do that. But you're so right. These modern um, the seventh generation, whichever generation we're on now with G Premium and stuff, the acrylic can uh, bond to that uh, yeah. and, and you can tack them in. So you're completely right. Well-reminded. Just like we can reface Bisacryl immediately with flowable, right? Or composite. It's the same thing. It's, it's, uh, it's got a resin-based, a methacrylate resin it may be, but it's still a resin-based. So you can apply the trim before you start, you know, uh, glazing or polishing, you still want a rough uh, bisacryl surface there, lock it in. 
uh, and it, it works really well. It's, it is a, I would say it's an improvement on the amount of de-cementing that we have. But I do say to my patients, I, I show them the prep I've done and I show them a prep I had done in the past on a full crown prep. And I still do full crown preps, you know, deeply discolored teeth, parafunctions. I haven't chucked Schillingberg's textbook in the bin, by the way. I've got massive respect for basil and uh, people that are doing traditional preps. I still do monolithic zirconias a lot. But more often than not, we're trying to veer away. And for those kind of cases, I say to my patient, okay, the worst thing that's going to happen here is your temporary may come off, but it's unlikely to be sensitive and we'll see you quite quick to get this turned around. But biologically, we've saved a tremendous amount. We look at the studies by Sorensen and Edelhoff, uh, and we look at Saunders and look at the rate of tissue, the amount of volume you lose with a full crown prep, 60% roughly, and you look at the loss of vitality around 20% with full crowns. Um, whereas with onlays like this it's no different to doing a do composite uh, brilliant and and two observations i think i could say is a with the zinc polycarboxylate cement uh, that we polyeth you know that we use uh, as a temporary cement because I, I also do that i think that's another reason why uh, patients don't get sensitivity is because if the onlay was to come away it leaves that thick white uh, cement layer which is just brilliant for preventing sensitivity again uh, and obviously a, a good ultrasonic scaler can just you know frazzle that way absolutely picks off really nicely low power and just just be patient uh, and far too mm -hmm. often we're trying to you know be aggressive but ultrasonic works by the power of the ultrasonic uh breaking down the surface not the pressure of your tip so you know i see young dentists when i'm training them and they they, they they're digging on that too i'm saying you know chill turn the power down take your time find that little ledge and just work on it and then suddenly a whole sheet just pings off uh, and it's just being a bit more patient, I guess. Brilliant. And a real pearl I took from you as well is to use the, the trim, uh, you know, put it in the side uh, onto your bisacryl using um, a, a latest generation uh, bond material. That's, that's great. And that's better than uh, some ways I've tried it in the past, whereby you can etch the buckle and the palatal, uh, and then you sort of put, put, put a blob of flowable in a little bit on the enamel, a little bit on the bisacral, but it's annoying. Who wants composite on their buckle and the palatal? It's annoying. It's fiddly. Uh, yes, it can be effective, sometimes not so much, uh, but I think everything you covered in terms of from the very beginning, looking at the occlusal shape and the and the way that the opposing tooth will guide and excurse with it uh, to use it, which cement to use, and these little uh, accessory techniques has just been Absolutely fantastic. Um, any other points, or uh, I, I think you've covered that comprehensively. Too much to do. Uh, no, I mean I'm, I'm really excited about doing the kind of courses and stuff we're doing with Riaz next year. I mean, Riaz has blown my mind with occlusion. My understanding is is picking up very very quickly on that, and the preparation kind of protocols. I hope we've made it quite simple. Uh, but in terms of bits of guidance, you know, the, the type of dentistry we're talking about. You really can't do unless you're using magnification. So, I mean, all this kind of subtle contact lens margin equators, put that all in the bin if you're not using magnification. So I, I tell any young dentist, you know, go and get a good pair of loops and don't start off with 1.8 and build yourself up. Jump in and get a decent magnification. Get a, get a powerful light. And, you know, that's the only way we're going to start to be able to do the type of modern adhesive dentistry that the loops a micro etcher and you know in terms of protocols it's lovely talking about how we can blend in a margin but understand the bonding agent you use go go look in the drawer rather than say nurse give me the bonding agent 
have a look at what it is. Is it a self-etch? Is it a total etch? Have a look at the manufacturer's instructions. You know, we, we somehow, it's like Kinder Eggs. We become kids when we start using these things. I don't need the instructions. Give it to me. You know, these things are there for a reason. Pick up the instructions. Um, I'm not going to tell you which bond to use, but use whatever bond you're using to the best capability that it can offer you. And like yours, get a radiometer, which are cheap as chips from eBay, and measure the power. Is it 800 milliwatts per millimeter squared? What's the wavelength range? You know, traditionally, we know that composite has a photo initiator, Camp 4 Quinone, which is set at 450 to 490 nanometers. It's activated at. Camp 4 Quinone is very yellow. So a lot of composites, you're talking about blending in margins and class 4 composites or posterior composites. The older ones used to go very yellow. One of the reasons is because of the Camp 4 Quinone. So in a response to try and reduce that, they use different initiators now for phenylp, all these other things, but they don't activate at the same wavelength. Some of them activate at 400 nanometers, some of them activate at 500 nanometers. So if you're using an LED light curing, unlike the old halogen lights, the Optilux 501s, a halogen light has a very wide wavelength range. An LED has a very narrow wavelength range. So if you're using a single LED light that's catered for camp 4 quinone, which is 450 to 490, but you're using a composite that has accessory initiators, you could be following the instructions and curing for 20 seconds, but you're not giving light of the right energy to activate that initiator. So you need to make sure you're using a latest generation multi-LED light. You can use the Velo, there's a light cure from GC, the Translux 2. Again, there's loads of great lights out there, but it's gotta be more than 800 milliwatts it's got to be multi-LED, and you've got to look at uh, the beam distribution. It can't just have a focus hotspot in the middle and then very, very weak on the sides. And I know we're going a bit off topic here, but essentially, this is more important than blending in of a margin. Because if we don't appreciate that bit, it's going to look shit in four years anyway. So what's the point? Amen, brother. Dude, I love your science. I love your passion. I love your geekiness, man. I've, I actually forgot how geeky you were, Nick. <laughs> this has been a brilliant reminder, but in a good way, man. We love we love geekiness, man. And this is what this podcast is all about. So Nick, honestly, you must send me any brochures, any websites you have for the course, because people are going to definitely message saying, okay, where can I find them? So I'll stick them on the show notes for this. This has been up there with uh, probably at the level of Chris Orr and Prof. Paul Tipton as two of the most, you know, one of the most clinical, heavy, and I mean that in a good way because we like these now and again, these these heavy ones. Like, yeah, yes, you've got the, the ones that we talk about like uh, with Rajiv Rawala, uh, 10 Successful Habits of Dentists, which is so much fun. But when you get this really geeky one, these ones that I love with you, Nick, just now, it was so full of workflows. At every stage, I was visualizing uh, exactly what you're doing to restoration, exactly what you're doing, what you're doing to a tooth. So I know we're going to get loads of like um, applauds and messages saying, wow, Nick's uh, protocols were, were on fire. So Nick... Thank you so, so mate. much for giving your time this evening. Oh, I know you're such a busy guy. It's uh, No, no, not at all, mate. You're, you're, you're super busy, but thank you. It's been a real pleasure. And I've been, I've been looking forward to doing this for a while, actually. I was quite nervous about coming on air with you. You're, you're, you're like a celebrity in the dental world now, Dad. So <laughs> thank you for having me. Guys, what did I tell you? I told you were in for a treat. And certainly there were so many knowledge bombs in there. It was phenomenal. Nick, thanks so much for doing a wonderful job. Guys, thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. If you liked it, share it with someone who might be placing their first onlay or maybe their hundredth onlay and they might just gain something from the temporization or from the bonding protocol that they can use on Monday morning. So thank you so much. I'll catch you same time, same place next week. <laughs>